rolling. This is Drive Time Prop. 30 minutes of jam-packed, up-to-the-minute news from a perspective of truth, liberty, and justice every weekday. This is Monica Perez. And I'm Brad Binkley. The top story today is Trump at the G7. G7 is the group of European nations that, I don't know, I figure they're just uh, plotting on taking over the world or how to control the world, how to run the world from their perches on high. And I was talking to somebody about what, about Trump's been in the news. There's all these reports that he makes a clown of himself, that they're all mad at him for upending the global economic structure through trade wars. And somebody asked me, what, what do I think they think of him? And frankly, when you watch it, he's very statesmanlike and dignified, and he's smarter than he acts, I think, a lot of times. So he got up there. He uh, He's very dignified, diplomatic, however you want to put it. So I don't think there's that kind of tension, and it kind of adds to my feeling that this is a bit of a show. But I did a whole show on when on Saturday, WSB show, kind of my last WSB show for the season. It'll be on this channel, Propaganda Report, that feed, wherever you listen to that. And then I'm kind of off for a while. So if you want to hear that show, you can go to MonicaPerezShow.com or Monica Perez Show on iTunes. But I think from now on, Propaganda Report and Drive Time Prop are going to be in this feed. That'll be the last one. And uh, But it's important listening because I do explain the tie-in between the China trade war, as the, it's being called, and prospects for the economy, interest rates, what Powell said, the Fed chair on Friday in Jackson Hole. It's, I think it's, I kind of tried to reflect my understanding of the situation, but it takes a while. So you'll have to listen to that. I have to thank Byron for getting back to me. If you listen to the show every day, you know, last week I said, oh, tell me, did I get the Corzine thing right? Did I get the 2008 crash right? And I tried to reflect some of his comments in what I was talking about on Saturday on the air. And But one of the things I didn't cover, because it's just for this, just what we talked about on this show, was that John Corzine, he didn't actually roll the dice with the money of the investors, of the account holders at MF Global, but he tried to cover his, I guess, margin call, something to that effect, with account money. So he already knew he was going down when he used that to shore up his reserves in the hope that his bet would pay off in time. So I actually think it's a little bit worse than what I thought, but he never went to trial, so we don't actually know for sure. But I do think I do think that the trade war with China and Brexit are both going to be used as an excuse for the correction that was inevitable after 2008. But I think it's that stuff is highly multitasking, and there's a, it is such an opportunity for corruption. And one example that I noticed, there was an article in the AJC about there's a, a package, a relief package going out to help agricultural companies deal with retaliatory tariffs from China. So this article was about the poultry industry, which is largely based in Georgia, and the agricultural secretary is Sonny Perdue, the former governor of Georgia, 
who, if you dig in, there are reports that he tends towards cronyism, and he has been in the agricultural industry for a while. And a large part of this almost $500 million package is, they say, probably going to end up in Georgia, although the details are not known, to relieve the poultry farmers of retaliatory tariffs. Then I go on to read the article, and this is what it says. It's really crazy. It says, Tom Super, senior vice president at the National Chicken Council, said the industry has been struggling with surpluses since being shut out of the China market completely in 2015 after an outbreak of avian influenza. We lost considerable market share, he said. We had $715 million in exports of chicken to China at peak. He said government payments are welcome. Every little bit helps. So relief from retaliatory tariffs means we put up a tariff, and China gets mad that we're not buying their stuff, so they put up a tariff so that we don't buy their stuff. The poultry industry would only be affected by a retaliatory tariff if China were punishing poultry imports. But since they haven't imported poultry to, from us since 2015, either there's something I don't get or this is a scam and cronyism and one of the things that might fall out of the trade war is this kind of thing, picking winners. And of course that it is ripe for cronyistic abuses. So uh, there, but there was one other thing that happened at the G7 that I think is going to get some airtime. Maybe it was just innocent. I don't know, but there was a point at a press conference they had after the G7 meeting. I think it was today where Macron, the French president, kind of exited stage left, and then Trump took some more questions. And there was one point it was like it seemed like a setup to me. He called on somebody, and she stood up and started asking questions. She said, no, not you, the person behind you. So the person behind her stood up, and uh, he said, don't say I don't give you access. She was a young black woman from the PBS NewsHour, and she looked a little uh, – you know, embarrassed, like a little, she was young and she just looked a little like, ah, uh, she didn't know what to do. So, but the question she asked was pretty obnoxious. She said, do you want Russia to come to the next G7 meeting? Now it used to be called the G8 and then Russia got disinvited. So she said, do you want to take Russia to come to the next G7 meeting, even though they meddled in the 2016 election? So he doesn't even respond to that, which is so annoying. But he says, he says, well, they were only kicked out because Obama was embarrassed that he got outsmarted by Putin. He lost Ukraine's Crimea to, to Putin. He was embarrassed in Syria because he drew a red line and then didn't respond to it. He said, he said to her, I know you like President Obama, but the fact is he got outsmarted. And she was really, like, in over her head, I felt. And she finally just couldn't take it anymore and said, I don't know why you're repeating this lie that it was Obama who got Russia kicked out. And he just kind of went toe-to-toe with her a little bit. And I felt like it it was setting up a to make him look kind of abusive towards her. It was a little, he, she was very, I thought she was 
friendly. I mean, she had asked a terrible question and then followed up with another. But that follow up wasn't bad. But it just it smacked as a setup to me, and I'm I'm kind of what what to watch out for in that and see if it's covered at all in the news going forward. Yeah, that's a good way to set Trump up is you send a female who's African-American and Trump will be Trump and then you can make it look like he's being racist. I don't know. If well, that's how I actually thought he seemed racist. If Why would he? Yeah, he because I understand that she's from PBS NewsHour. So obviously she's a Democrat. But he so when he said, I know you like President Obama, unless he knows her personally, which I doubt. I think he but, might. You're talking about the BBC girl. No, the PBS News oh, Hour. PBS News, yeah. Young black woman. I think they've had some interactions in the past. Oh, okay. So then maybe he does know her personally, in which case it would not it wouldn't be. But if he was if he did not know her personally, there would be two possibilities of why he would tell say, I know you like President Obama, either because she's clearly a Democrat coming from the PBS News Hour, or because she's black and he's making a racist assumption. Yeah, choosing the word don't say I never give you access is probably not the best word to choose when a lot of the talk around, especially with Stacey Abrams, is people, minorities, communities, people of color need access to voting that they're trying to prevent them from getting. So, probably right, not so the- there's some charged language there. Yeah. The whole thing seemed the way he like wouldn't let somebody cut in when she it was, he was very specifically wanted to address her. So I just I thought there was something up there. My favorite part of the G7, because mostly I thought it was insanely boring. <laughs> My favorite part was the trend on Twitter where everybody was saying, get you someone who looks at you like Melania looks at Macron. You know, they do that same thing every year. Every time Macron or the Canadian prime minister meets up with Trump and Melania, it's always like, ooh, Melania wants to hook up with the other foreign leader. Another thing interesting about the G7 was that they had some protesters that were protesting capitalism, and the French police hit them with the water cannon, kind of like the water cannons that were being used in the Hong Kong protests. They tested them last week, and they used them this week. Right before or right after in the Hong Kong protest, they finally fired the first gunshot. So the the escalation of the protest worldwide continues. With that said, I read one of the most extraordinary articles I've ever read last night. New York Times is on politics. It's about how the Trump operatives are targeting journalists. And the article, is it goes on and talks about this loose network of conservative operatives that is collecting dossiers of offensive social media posts and other problematic statements, public statements, made by hundreds of journalists in the mainstream media. And they're using this to try and discredit the mainstream media and get people to lose their jobs. And the article, it says it in a very convoluted way, but it admits that the information is publicly available. The statements and the pictures and the videos were posted by the journalists themselves. The statements do show the hypocrisy. They do show them saying racist and anti-Semitic things, the very things that they accuse the other side of saying. But then they just say they shouldn't be doing it. It shouldn't be allowed for these conservative operatives who are conducting an operation. They continue to call it an operation and – At one point, the article says this. 
journalistic techniques to target journalists and news organizations as retribution for or as a warning to not pursue coverage that is critical of Trump is fundamentally different from the well-established role of the news media in scrutinizing people in positions of power. So they admit that these operatives are using the exact same techniques that they themselves use against them, but that it's not okay for them to use it because they're not in the media like they themselves are. It's so convoluted. There's a couple of things going on there. First of all, I think Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, had a terrible time with the newspapers being highly politicized and being used for election purposes. So this is a very old story. That, that I think, is why he came out with that famous quote. I'll paraphrase it. The man who reads nothing is better educated than the man who reads nothing but newspapers. So, and I think Ben Franklin said the best education is to read the newspaper every day. I'll have to check on that one. But these are this back and forth is as this is as old as this country. But I felt that that article was a was the same argument for the left as we've been getting for the right, which is this new age, new era. Fairness doctrine. So the fairness doctrine back in the day was that radio, for example, had to put up as much left wing stuff as right wing stuff. I think the I think radio just lends itself to more right stuff than left. So the left kind of made it a made it by force that they you had to give equal time. And then that went away under Reagan, and then, if I recall correctly, and then and then Obama talked about bringing it back, and people on the right went bananas. So I think the new trend, the new approach to censorship is, and I think we saw hints of this in the Quartz article about Google, is that they decided to take the public square into titular titularly, if that's a word, but like in in title only private organizations like Google, Facebook, Twitter, make those the public square, but allow, but don't need, don't require public rules to apply to that so that they can get away with censorship and it doesn't look like First Amendment encroachments. And now I think they are looking at these, so so in this new age, they're saying, well, the private companies are biased and abusive against conservatives, and we really need the government to regulate it. And then I'll, I've seen many articles where, or at least numerous articles, where they say, you know, you don't care about the conservatives. We don't have sympathy towards them, but we do need something like this. It hurts left and right both. Trust us. So I do think this is going to converge. And this kind of hints at somebody asked me to explain what the dialectic was. And I use the expression all the time. So I got an email. Anybody wants to email me, just uh, go to, I think, thepropreport.com. You can communicate with me in several ways there. But Ty asks, please explain the dialectic. The dialectic is when you have a thesis, so one idea, and then you have an antithesis, which is the opposite idea. And the the tension between those two ideas in the maybe the marketplace for opinion results in a synthesis, which I say is really what they were after in the first place. So when the 20th century dialectic was capitalism versus communism and the 
the synthesis was social democracy. But if you look at Cecil Rhodes and those guys at the beginning of the 20th century, their goal was global social democracy in the example and the English language and the example of England along with the English language as a way to kind of under the radar reinstitute the British Empire. So capitalism versus socialism or communism versus fascism, however it came to be where this where all the countries who were in the world war world wars one and two end up having social democracy. That's the synthesis. So the dialect, so here you have the left getting mad at this thing, the right getting mad at this at censorship from the left. And then the synthesis is just going to be, oh, government regulation. And I think the synthesis is almost always send the power up to the government. The bit higher the government, the better. The federal government, global government, whatever. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this article. It talks about how it is wrong to highlight to show evidence that maybe somebody in the mainstream media said racist things in the past because they are in the mainstream media. So you should not be allowed to do that is what the article is arguing, and it says that it doesn't matter that these things are true because what they're doing is they're they're trying to damage these these respectable journalists by showing things that they said in their youth, by showing their uncomfortable connections with maybe bad people with that have bad reputations, Jeffrey Epstein. And that's that's one of the main things that this story goes to is they're providing excuses for their audience so that information that comes out in the future – and I think this article is foretelling that information that is very bad about some mainstream journalists is about to come out. And they're providing, just like the CIA deception manual said – justifications for their audience so that way when they see this damning information, they don't get cognitive dissonance and it does not affect them. So that's one thing that I think is happening, and I have another story that goes with that here in a second. Another thing that's happening in this story is that – oh, wait, no. Yeah, that's the main thing I, I got out of it is it's okay to lie. It's okay to be contradictory. It's okay to be uh, a hypocrite as long as you are us and not them. It's not okay for them to do it. That's the basic argument in the article, and the reason is because they are the media and you are not. So a second article that I, I have is titled, Why Couldn't the Visionaries at MIT Spot a Bad Actor Like Jeffrey Epstein? At MIT, the MIT Media Lab, Jeffrey Epstein, it came out that he had donated $800,000 to the MIT Media Lab. And once this came out, two of the people who worked there – actually, it didn't come out until two of the people who worked there, two of the researchers, they found out about it, and they boycotted it. They quit because they didn't want to be associated with something that Jeffrey Epstein had funded. And so this brought the story to light, and they found out that the Media Lab head accepted money from Epstein – after he had already been convicted and gone to jail. So after 2008, Epstein was funding the Media Lab. And Do you remember – can I interrupt? Do you remember yeah. the articles about him hiring a, rehab, a social media rehab firm and it included yes. yeah. charity? Yeah, and this is the MIT Media Lab. I, I thought about that when I was reading that. He's putting his money where the media is so he can try and reshape his – and it worked for a while. People did not talk about what he did for a while, and when, when people like us did, it got squashed. So 
there's some funny lines in this article because the article spends the entire time. The article is written by the Boston Globe, and obviously MIT is in Boston, and Epstein also donated to Harvard. So every time they mentioned the money that was given to MIT, the article uh, preempts that by saying Epstein really loved Harvard more, and he donated much more to Harvard. So they, they upplay the Harvard donations and then downplay the MIT donations, and then they – they talk about how naive the researchers were, and they talk about how Epstein was – It was. Uh, they said it was – for what we can tell, all of the interactions between the MIT researchers and Jeffrey Epstein were transactional. They were just transactional. Epstein would get the intellectual property or the intellectual stimulation from them in exchange for him funding their projects, for him flying them around on his jet, and for him flying them down to their island, down to his island. It was all just transactional. Nobody knew what was going on, even though money was accepted after Epstein had already been convicted and gone to jail. The article tries to make it seem as though they are just dumb, brilliant people who were bamboozled by this wealthy man, and they knew nothing of what he had done. That's the basic takeaway from the article, and it ends the article by calling Epstein a grifter and posing the question, how can these brilliant minds, these visionaries, not see what a terrible person Epstein was. What can we do to prevent this next time? So it never at one point says, did any of them know? Did they have any clue at all? Never poses that question. And this to me connects to that previous article because it uses a lot of similar language. It makes it seem like there's going to be more bad information coming out, connecting people in public light, maybe some people's favorite you know, journalist in the mainstream media with Jeffrey Epstein on a bad level. And so they're seeding these stories in the media that downplays it, that makes them, oh, they're just a dumb intellectual who was giving a, somebody the benefit of the doubt, who was funding them. He was on the island. He had no idea what was going on. They're providing those CIA manual, deception manual, justifications and reasons to the public so that they can inoculate the public from what was really going on there. Well, so, let me ask you a question. What was really going on? Why was he rubbing elbows with scientists? I don't know. I don't know why he was rubbing elbows with scientists. I think there's, there, are, yeah, there are rumors that his intel work for whoever it was for went deeper even than just blackmailing individuals because he, ha- he did have scientists there that are, you know, so it's possible he was actually trying to get information from them that belonged to the university or was government research or MIT is a big tech incubator for the Department of Defense. You know, now that you say that, the British, it talks about this in these propaganda books, the, the first people they target in international propaganda are the intellectuals, are the professors at the major And these are specific. MIT, I think, is specific. That, that's where tech comes from that, and tech is an offshoot of defense I wouldn't be surprised if it if it if it goes much much deeper yeah. than this. I think we are going to see some more Epstein revelations. I did not uh, a few weeks ago, but I am starting to think we will see some more Epstein revelations. Yeah, and I had dismissed this idea of him wanting to use his DNA and freeze his penis and stuff. I was like, they're just saying that because it's it's kind of kooky and it'll get people out of their out of the pedophile thing but i think it's actually right. the pedophile thing may just be a piece of the uh, you know one of the tactics but but speaks nothing to the strategy 
goal or any of that. And I mean, maybe it even goes to black ops in a way yeah. where you can't use that tech the way you want to through normal channels. I don't know, but I think this is the, this, so maybe there is going to be more to this than we know. Yeah. I can't see why they're trying to preempt and get the public to be okay with whatever bad things we're going to find out. These are two stories I, I saw on the same day. And I bet we see more like this. Two more quick points about that is this media lab gives away a disobedience award each year. And last year, this this lab that was funded by Jeffrey Epstein gave their disobedience award to the activist in the Me Too movement. A little bit of irony there. And I think this supports, you know, I don't know. We'll never know. But I think stuff like this would lend at least a little bit of questions or credibility, not credibility, but make you question. Maybe he did give up some information and maybe he did fake his death. Yeah, I don't, I mean, that I don't even care about. Yeah. That, that doesn't, I don't care about that at all. All I care about is what are the interesting things that could help put us, give us a bit greater insight into the machinations on high and how international intrigue really works to the extent it's going to affect us, what they're up to and why. Is it war? Is it surveillance? What's going on? And does this plug in at that level? Yeah. All right, so uh, speaking of international stuff, I wanted to follow up on the Brazilian Amazon fires, which I thought was interesting because we put some pieces together after the last time I mentioned it where I said, oh, this is so funny. This The Brazilian president said, hey, man, I think the NGOs are starting the fires. And this seemed to me like a real possibility. And then you had said to me off air, Hey, isn't he or that? Oh, that's the kind of stuff that Trump says that, that they target him and say, oh, he's a conspiracy theorist. And and then it's it clicked with me that oh, this whole story is so parallel with Trump, just like I think Boris Johnson is parallel with Trump, that this guy is the Trump of Brazil in the same way he was controversial. The way this particular story unfolded is he's a guy. He said something like, call me Captain Chainsaw. So you take the yeah the take the environmental extremist position, then you get this guy who is an extremist in the other way. So maybe loggers want him to be Captain Chainsaw, and and loggers will like that, and a lot of people rely on that for income, and they're annoyed at how far the environmentalists go. But instead of just saying let's you know let's have rational regulations. This guy's Captain Chainsaw. And then he cuts a lot of their funding, this environmental group's funding. And then he says, well, they're starting fires, which they probably are because they're playing into the dialectic. This is another example. It's why it comes up so much. So you have the environmental extremists on the one hand, and you have the, I don't care about the environment extremists on the other hand. And what you will probably have is a synthesis where rational, moderate, globalist regulation will be the answer everyone can agree upon or that the international community pressures them on, maybe even gives them sanctions for, but it's the thesis, the antithesis, and then the synthesis, which will probably be a global regulatory regime Yep. Beca- because they also put in the fact that, that this is, these are the Amazon forest is the rainforest is the, are the lungs of the United the States. Lungs of the, of the of the world, world. The lungs of the lungs are collapsing. 
And environmentalism is one of those levers that was intentionally used, according to the report from Iron Mountain, which you can't, I don't think you can take it strictly word for word, but it is in, in essence truth. They needed some global crisis that would justify global government. And they looked to environmentalism. And this is one where you're like, wow, if they are the lungs of the world, now we could get into that, how a libertarian handles that question. Maybe I will, but we're running out of time. So I want you to take it away. The Pope called for a world governing body, just like you just said earlier today. And he called for it for finance too. Yeah. So – this story, I've seen like a hundred stories, hundred personalized stories about the fires in the Amazon, and they all relate back to climate change. And there's all these indirect stories that we've seen. There's the hurricane hurricane seasons here, so we're going to talk about the hurricane stewing because of the warm rising sea levels and the climate change hurricanes. And we're going to see all the interesting new weather technology where the it looks like the journalist is getting uh, swallowed up by water while they're doing the report. We're going to see the people faking like they're in really strong winds. Uh, there's the Greenland story. <laughs> there's Bill Gates donated a billion dollars to uh, researching climate change. There was a Gillette commercial about a firefighter fighting dangerous fires that's related back to climate change. And then there was a, the toxic blue algae story is killing people's dogs, also being blamed on climate change. What they're doing there is people don't care about climate change unless they're asked about it or they feel like they need to because of a political statement. It, it's, a, it's not something that people feel personally, so they don't really care about it. They're trying to personalize it to the everyday individual, especially with the dog story. Your dog is going to die because of climate yeah, change. Right. You can find your drive time prop every day at 4 p.m. at thepropreport.com or your favorite podcasting platform. Monica, did you want to say a word? Yes, I wanted to thank people very, very much for all of the feedback we got. We, it was, I, I was like, oh, we'll work on the quality later. That was the number one request. Like, get that quality right. It's hard to listen to. And some feedback about pacing and depth <laughs> and all that. Some of that was contradictory. But we, I think, and thank you, Binkley, and the people who helped uh, with some real excellent advice on how to get the sound right. I think it is right. And I think we've kind of got what we're going to go with. And I ask now, because I think there's a big demand for this. The only to have everyday news without the MSMBS that uh, I think the only thing is we just need to get some exposure so that we know that there's a demand for it. So now would be the time if you like this show, all we're asking is that you share it, share it on social media or target people specifically who you know will like it or both, and we'll see We'll see if it's worthwhile. So far, I think there's been a great demand, so I we think we're uh, refining it, fine-tuning it, and that'll be uh, awesome. Looking forward to some more feedback anytime you like at thepropreport.com. We'll talk to you all next time.